What is your hope of heaven? It's a question I've asked people for, for many years. I remember one of the first times I asked it. Early in my pastoral ministry, I, I was visiting a 80-plus-year-old woman who didn't have that long to live, and she'd been a, a, a regular church goer for all her life. She must have heard the gospel probably thousands of times and been to church thousands of times, read the Bible through, I don't know, multiple times, sung every psalm there was to sing, probably ever, every hymn there was to sing. And I thought I, I was on pretty safe ground by asking such a Christian woman, what is your hope of heaven? And yet her answer was, well, I've, I've gone to church all my life. I have supported the church. I've, I've done good. I've, I've been good to my family, my friends, my neighbors, and, and I haven't harmed anyone. And I have to be honest, I was absolutely devastated. I, I could hardly… I, I, did, I didn't know where to go next. I, I, I just… And as a young pastor, I, I could really hardly believe that someone who had been so steeped in the gospel for so many decades could yet still have confidence in herself as her hope of heaven. Well, almost 30 years on from that conversation… I'm no longer devastated. I'm no longer shocked because I've heard that answer or versions of it multiple times from multiple people on multiple continents who have had very similar backgrounds to this woman. And these experiences have changed the way that I now answer this question. What is the most common heresy? What is the most common heresy? Well, first of all, we might want to ask, what is a heresy? A heresy is uh, more than a mistake about Christian truth. It's, it's more serious than an error. It's a, a departure from one of the fundamental truths of the Christian faith, a willful abandonment of a historic, orthodox Christian truth. And, and so, what is the most common heresy? When I was at seminary, we were taught many heresies, not as truth, but to help us combat them. We learned about heresies such as the denial of Christ's deity, the denial of Christ's humanity, hence the Nicene Creed that was meant to oppose that. We learned about the denial of the virgin birth, the denial of the resurrection, the denial of substitutionary atonement. We learned about all these 
heresies, these fundamental departures from the Christian faith that weren't just damaging to a person's faith, but damning, destructive heresies. And yet, as I've gone through years in church ministry, I've actually very rarely come across these heresies, like the denial of Christ's virgin birth, resurrection, atonement, His humanity, His deity. But I've come across the heresy that Christ is not enough more times than I can count. I've come across the heresy that I can be good enough or do good enough hundreds, maybe thousands of times in 80-year-olds and 8-year-olds and everything in between. That is the most common heresy. And that's why the Apostle Paul addresses this so often in all of his letters, and especially in the book of Romans, because he saw also that this was the most common heresy, the most common soul-damaging, soul-destroying, soul-damning departure from the Christian faith. And therefore, he, he is going to help us this evening to abandon this heresy and embrace Christian truth. And I, I'm pretty sure that there are some heretics here this evening. I've met enough church people to know that this is a common heresy and therefore likely to be represented here tonight. And I hope, earnestly hope and pray that you will see it, you will see this belief that you can be good enough or do good enough as the most horrendous, abominable, damnable heresy you could ever embrace, and that you would abandon it, you would turn from it, you would veer away from it, and you would return to what is fundamental, orthodox, saving Christian truth. We've been seeing over past weeks, for example, in Romans 5, how grace delivers us from the law's penalty for sin. And then in Romans 6, grace delivers us from the law's powerlessness over sin. And here in Romans 7, grace delivers us from the law's provocation of sin, how it actually stirs up sin, as we'll see again here this evening. And therefore, it's no surprise, as Paul's been talking about deliverance from the law's penalty, the law's powerlessness, the law's provocation, it's not surprising that a question arises in the reader of, well, is the law sin? As we see here in Romans 7, verse 7, what shall we say then? That the law is sin by no means, says Paul. That was a very short answer. There's not much reasoning in it. Just three words, 
No, no, no. By no means. But then, in the following verses, he expands on this, and he gives us a couple of reasons for why the law is not sin and how the law should be used in our life, not as a standard that we try to reach so that we are good enough without Christ. So, is the law sin? No, he says, the law reveals sin. Look at verse 7. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul's telling us here about two phases of his life. He's using his own biography to teach us truth. And the first phase of that life is outward perfection. Outward perfection. He looked at himself as outwardly perfect. So, here, he's actually talking about his pre-Christian, his pre-conversion life. He's talking about himself as Saul of Tarsus, when he says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So, he's saying there was a period of his life where he did not know sin. It's not that he didn't know the law and he didn't know sin. It's they didn't really know them. He didn't know them as he should have known them. And, and we know that because in another part of the Bible, one of his other letters, he explains to us how he, he really did know the law. If you read in Philippians 3, 5 to 6, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So, he, here he is in his pre-conversion life as Saul of Tarsus, and he's going through the commandments, and he's ticking all the boxes. No other gods? Tick. Worshiping God rightly? Tick. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Tick. Don't take the Lord's name in vain? Tick. He went through box after box, 4.0 GPA spiritually. This was Paul in his unconverted life. He's looking at himself outwardly, externally, and he's saying, outwardly, perfect. But sometimes he got to the tenth box, and he hesitated. He hesitated. You shall not covet. Hmm. How did he, why did he hesitate there? Because this is the only commandment that exclusively addresses the invisible. All the other commandments are at least about the outward. But this commandment, you shall not covet, there's nothing visible to see. It's all about desire. It's all about longing. It's all about 
aim. It's all about motive. And so, although on the nine commandments, one to nine, he had outward perfection, he came to the tenth, and he saw something else. He saw inward imperfection. As he says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for (coughs) I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So, he's doing really well. He's really happy with himself. But then he comes to this 10th commandment, and and he's looking for something visible and external, and and it's not possible. And he sees, oh, this is about invisible desires. This is about inward delights. This is about secret passions. This is about unseen thoughts. This, this, this commandment, this, this was an, a whole new world to this very outward man. He, he was forced to look inside. He was forced to look inward. And when he did, he saw things he did not like. In fact, the amazing thing is about the Tenth Commandment is it tells us that commandments one to nine are also about desire. Yes, they're about the outward and the visible, but they're also about the inward. Because you shall not covet means you shall have no unlawful or excessive desires. And if that's true, then I'm sinning if at any time I want another God or idol, or if I want to worship God in a way He has forbidden, or if I want to take the name of the Lord in vain, if it secretly passes through my brain, or if I want to claim the whole Lord's day for myself, or if I want to steal, or I want to commit adultery, or I want to hurt someone, or I want to tell a lie. This commandment basically says to Paul, you thought you were doing good one to nine? Let's dig deeper. Let's look at desire. And that's why he says here, I would not have known sin if it had not been for the law, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see how the law reveals sin? Therefore, let's praise God for His law. Better we know, yeah? It's like, it's like the x-ray, isn't it? None of us want to see what is inside when there's a problem, and yet it's better to see and to know than to not see and not know, surely. It's, it's, it's ugly, isn't it? I'm sure some of us, like myself, we look at these and we, we can barely look without feeling the pain of it. And yet, it's what we need to know if we're ever going to get these broken bones fixed. So, so we praise God, because although the commandments cannot save us from sin or sanctify us, yet they can show us our sin and show us our need for salvation and show us our need for sanctification. So it's, it's like we can... We can be a perfect Pharisee with commandments one through nine, but, but the tenth commandment is like, a, it's like a, something that punctures through our Pharisaical balloon. 
and leaves us completely deflated and flat on the ground. That's what Paul went through. That's what Paul experienced. And therefore, let's let's share God's view of sin, right? It's not just about what's visible and external and, and, and seeable, is it? It's interesting, the CRC issued the Human Sexuality Report last year. And in it, they, they quoted a statement from a 1973 church report and embraced it and said, we, we still believe this. Now, there were many good things in this statement, but this was wrong because it said this, we must distinguish between the person who is homosexual in their so- sexual orientation and the person who engages in explicit sexual acts with persons of the same sex. In other words, they say, there is no sin in being attracted to the same sex. We only sin if we act on our sexual attractions. Paul would say, brothers, sisters, you need the Tenth Commandment. Because that shows us that sin is not just about the external acts, it's about the desires. It's about the attractions. It's about the wants. Yeah, we look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Let's share God's view of sin. The law can only show sin. It cannot save from sin. So, then, Here we've got Paul and us. Maybe we remember that time when we began to see who we really were. And and the law began to convict us of sin and show us our sin. So, what was the result of that? What was the consequence of that? Surely, when we go through that experience, surely when Paul went through that experience, then he and we try harder to be good, right? Wrong. The effect of this is the opposite. It actually makes us want to sin more. When we see that sin is about wanting, and the law convicts us of that, we actually want to sin more. Let's see how Paul explains that to us here. Because he says the law fuels sin. It pours gasoline on the sinful heart. And he tells us this in three ways. He says, first of all, I was alive. Then he said, sin came alive. And then he says, I died. So let's just look at his story here. First of all, he says, I was alive. Look at verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. Now, what does apart from the law mean? As we've said already, it doesn't mean that he had no knowledge of the law. He was very well versed in the law. He had had his bar mitzvah. Age 12, he became a child of the law. And therefore, what Paul is meaning here when he speaks of being apart from the law, not in tune with the law, he's saying, I wasn't aware of the law's spirituality. I wasn't aware of the way the law addressed me inwardly that it reached beyond what people could see into my heart, my mind, my conscience. It wasn't just what was visible, 
above the surface, like a, the tip of an iceberg, but it was also about what was underneath. That's what apart from the law means. But when the, he was apart from the law, when he was in this state of thinking the law was only about the externals and the physical and the visible, he says, I was alive. I was once alive apart from the law. And again, he's not saying he was objectively, morally, and spiritually healthy. He's saying, I thought I was. I thought I was doing really well spiritually. I was really proud of myself. I, I didn't see sin in my life. I had a peaceful conscience. I had no conviction of sin. I gave myself spiritual medals. I patted myself in the back and I said, you're doing really well, Paul. Well done. You're an impressive man. I was alive. Life was good. I was once alive apart from the law. Once. But then something happened. Sin came alive. Verse 9. But sin, sorry, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. The commandment came, again, cannot mean that this was the first time he ever heard of the commandments, right? No, it's, it's talking about when the commandment came in a whole new way, in a whole new power, with a whole new penetration, with a whole new impression, with a whole new experience of conscience pain, of guilt, of condemnation. The commandment came. It's like Paul was sailing past nine rocks in his little ship really easily. And then suddenly he was sunk by an unseen rock. The tenth, you shall not covet. Underneath the surface, this, this punctured his, his hull and sunk him to the bottom of the ocean. The commandment came. And what happened? Sin came alive. Sin came alive. What does this mean? Well, of course it means he saw more sin, right? The law reveals sin. He saw himself more as a sinner. But it's also this. He actually did more sin. Instead of the effect being, oops, I realized I'm a sinner now in a way I hadn't before. I better try better. No. There was such a resentment. There was such a rebellion in this inner heart that he was found in himself a determination to sin as he had never sinned before. Sin came alive. Suddenly, there were inside of him stirred up desires that he never knew existed. As long as he was dealing with the external, commandments 1 to 9, and never commandment 10. He was all sailing fine. Then he hits commandment 10, and sin is stirred up. Not this, this whole question of, oh, sin is about desire. It, it's like it, it, it starts this inner conversation. How, how dare God actually want me to be inwardly perfect as well. How, I mean, is God not happy with me being outwardly good and outwardly impressive? You, you mean He wants me to be perfect inside as well? That, that's, that's unfair. 
that's, that's not just. Therefore, these evil desires are raised, and now he wants to worship idols as he never did before. He wants to worship in his own way, not God's way, as he never did before. He finds blasphemous thoughts coming out of his mind and heart in ways he never had before. He's determined to take all seven days for himself, not just six. He wants to start lying and stealing and committing adultery and even hurting people. The law came. Sin revived. The law fueled sin. And he explains it a wee bit more in verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Kinds of covetousness, kinds of desire. He never knew he had. He never experienced before. The commandment came. Sin came alive. I died. It's like, a, it's like a poker. You know, you, you have a fire, and it looks as if it's cold and dead. You bring a poker, stick it around a wee bit, blow on it a little bit. <sighs> There's a fire now. That's, he's saying, what the law does. It, it stirs up the, the fires of hell. It's like you're looking at a mountain, this impressive mountain, and, and you're full of admiration. You thought, I'm going to climb this. You climb to the top, and you look in, and you see it's an actual volcano. Inside is just a hell of lava and burning and destruction. That's, that's what Paul's saying that he went through. He discovered inside of himself this volcano of sinful desire. I, sin came alive. And what's, what's he saying? He's saying there's, there's nothing so attractive as the forbidden. The, the prohibition increases the desire for the prohibited. We're weird, aren't we? I was alive. Sin was alive. Third step, I died. I died. Verse 9 again. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Now, again, it doesn't mean he, it literally killed Paul. No, it was that he, it revealed his spiritual death. He came to see that he was dead spiritually. It killed his self-confidence. It killed his pride. It killed his self-trust. It killed his self-image. He died. The old Saul was finished. He could never be revived. He could never be resurrected again. As he says in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life, that was his hope, that he could be good enough and do good enough, proved death to me. Verse 11, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Here's this good thing, the law of God, but sin picks it up and turns it against the sinner, killing him, killing his hopes. So, God's law is not the problem, right? As, as Paul says here in verse 12, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with God's law if it's used rightly. The, the law is not the problem. We are the problem. And our sinful hearts are the problem. Sin in our hearts seizes the law that God brings into our life to do His good and uses it as a weapon to produce more sin, to deceive us, 
and to kill us. But God overrules the problem. Look, for example, at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Why, why did God use the law? It was to reveal sin. It was to fuel sin so that we can see ourselves as we really are and sin as it really is so that we will never begin to think, I can ever do good enough or be good enough. This is God's great aim in this painful, searching process. And he's, he's saying the law, it should put a break on sin, but because of our sinfulness, it actually presses the accelerator. I remember that in my own life when I was under conviction in my early 20s. For long enough, I thought it was good enough. But then started knowing conviction of sin, and far from making me less sinful, made me desire sin and want sin all the more. It was fuel to the fire. Instead of being a break, it was an accelerator. And if you're in that, if you're in that situation tonight, I, I think you should be encouraged. God's at work. God's at work. If God is revealing sin to you, and even through the law coming into your life, you're finding desires you never knew you had, God's at work. The Holy Spirit is at work. His purpose is to show you the sinfulness of sin, the helplessness of your situation. So, see the seriousness of this heresy, right? That you can be good enough or do good enough. It's, it's damaging. It's destructive. It's damning. It's not something to tolerate. It's not something to trifle with. It's not something to have as a backup plan or an insurance you know, sometimes, you know, I believe in grace, I believe Christ alone, but I'm just, I'm, pat, I'm, I'm storing up some, you know, good works, just in case. No, no, no. Abandon them. It's a heresy. You can never bring anything good enough or be good enough. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. You will never be good enough. You'll never do good enough. But Christ is more than enough, isn't he? Of course he is. And therefore, he'll use this part of Paul's story to see, I've got to abandon this heresy immediately and forever and never go back to it. Leave it behind. See it as, as destructive and damning. And see the beauty of truth, the beauty of embracing Christ and saying, you are enough. What is the most common heresy? Abandon the heresy of good enough and embrace the truth of Christ is more than enough. Has Paul convinced you of that tonight? Be repulsed by this heresy. And it is a heresy. 
It's not something tame and small and, well, I mean, that's a mistake. No, no, no. It's, it's going to send you to hell. Everything revolves around this. Are you good enough? Or is Christ good enough? More than good enough. Abandon heresy and embrace truth and never, ever go back. Let's pray. Lawmaker, lawgiver, and law judger, turn us and keep us turned from the good enough heresy and help us to embrace that Christ is more than enough truth. We thank You, Lord, for Your law, which indeed shows us how sinful we are, but also points us to how gracious You are. In Jesus' name, amen.